Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And thank you, Jamie. Appreciate that as well. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, why don't you grab them at this point in time? And uh, let's turn to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And uh, if you're using the Pew Bible like the one I have here, it is on page 778. 778 as we begin our journey through the book of Malachi with uh, part one, uh, as Malachi encourages us to believe God, to believe God. That is simply that he loves us. Malachi chapter 1. And we'll begin in verse 1. You may be familiar with the, with the story of the life of a woman by the name of Corey Tin Boom. Corey Tin Boom. She and her family were uh, Dutch Christians uh, in the midst of World War II. And uh, what they did is they uh, helped many of the, of the Jews that were being persecuted by the Nazis uh, escape the Holocaust by hiding them in their house, by hiding them in their home. They had a place that they called in their family the hiding place. And it was a place where they would give these Jewish uh, refugees uh, a place of rest and uh, safety. Well, after a, a local informant informed the Germans of their activity, their home was raided and utterly destroyed. And she and her family were sent to a notorious uh, concentration camp. There she suffered, as you can only imagine, unimaginable horrors uh, there in Germany. Just days then after her sister was killed, she, as the story goes, was uh, miraculously released uh, from that German concentration camp. And she went on to, to write a book. You may have heard of it before. The book is simply entitled The Hiding Place, of course, after the place in their home where they kept these Jewish people. It's an incredible book, and I commend it to you. Now, if anyone could question, because of the circumstances in their life, God's love, if anyone could question if God loved them because of what they had to go through, I think it's fair to say it would be Corey Tin Boom. Yet in spite of her suffering, uh, she had incredible faith through the midst of it, and she wrote a poem that I'd like to read to you. The poem is about God's sovereignty and his love in the midst of suffering, and the poem is simply entitled, Life is But a Weaving. Life is But a Weaving. It goes like this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Those are incredible words penned by a woman who went through unimaginable unimaginable suffering and yet never doubted and relinquished God's love for her. Well, this morning we come to what is the first of six disputes. The first of six disputes between 
God and his people. Between Israel, God's covenant people, and God. The first of six disputes that we see in the book of Malachi. As the people of God doubt the love of God. So friends, what we're going to ponder this morning is this question. How does God respond to us? How does God respond to his people when they, because of the circumstances in their life, because of things that they're going through, when they doubt his love, when they question, God, do you love me? How does God respond to that? Well, we're going to find out this morning in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Malachi essentially says to us, believe God. Believe God, regardless of what you're going through, that he loves you. Let's begin in verse 2 with the people's uh, uh, claim. Actually, with God's claim in verse 2. At the very beginning, we see this disputation begins with God's claim. And God is simply going to claim, he's going to tell his people, I love you. God through Malachi begins with, I think what is a, it's a significant, it's a tone setting, it's a foundation laying claim to his cynical, his skeptical, his suspicious people. Let's read the text together starting in verse 2 as we see God's claim. I have loved you, says the Lord. This disputation begins with God's claim to love his covenant people. Very clearly, he says this. I have loved you. O Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, the tense in Hebrew stresses not just God's present love for them in their present circumstances, but the idea is that God began his love with them all the way back with his covenant to Abraham. And his love has remained with his people all the way through their entire history, even up into the present day where the Jewish people were during the time of Malachi. You could, you could read it this way. You could paraphrase it this way. It's as if God is saying, Israel, I have loved you, and I still do. It's like he's saying, I've never stopped loving you. I've never stopped, in spite of what you are going through. And what's astounding is that this is not the first time that God has reminded his people that he loves them, that he is for them. We see this phrase, the love of God, 32 times in the Old Testament. And most of those times, God's love is for Israel. That is the referent. It's directed to Israel. And so over 32 times, at least 32 times, God says to his covenant people throughout their history, I love you. I'm for you. I love you. I love you. And he does so here at the very end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. And when you read through those scriptures, when you look through those 32 references to the love of God for his covenant people, two kind of qualities, two characteristics uh, really stand out. And, and the first one is simply this, that God's love for his covenant people is a sovereign love. It's a sovereign love. You see it all throughout the Old Testament and the New, as we're going to see in a little bit. So what do I mean by that when I say God's love for his covenant people is a sovereign love? Well, it's very clear in the Old Testament that God chose his covenant people. He chose to set his love upon them, not because he saw that they were meritorious. It's not like he looked at Abraham and said, you're a good guy. I'm going to enter into a covenant relationship with you. It's not like he looked at Israel and said, boy, you guys are a a cut above, a great above. I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. No, quite the opposite. He said, I have sovereignly chosen you, O Israel. But not only is God's love for his covenant people un, uh, sovereign, it's, it's unconditional. That is, apart from their performance, apart from how they keep their end of the bargain of the covenant, God is faithful to them 
His love remains upon them. It's a sovereign love for his covenant people. It's an unconditional love for his covenant people. In the back, uh, there by Gary, I want you to pick up a list of these 32 references. They're not all 32. They're about six key verses on God's love for his covenant people in the Old Testament. Take them with you. Read them at home. But what you'll see when you read through them is that God is not like the man in the story I heard this week. He's not like this particular husband. There was a husband... And uh, his wife kept on asking him uh, a simple question, honey, do you love me? And she would ask him over and over, honey, do you, do you love me? And after a while, he just started to clam up and, and get rather annoyed by this. And so one day he said, honey, why do you keep asking me this? Why do you keep asking me if I love you? Of course I, of course I love you. I, I provide for you. I go to work. There's a house. I provide food. Of course I, I love you. Why do you keep asking me that? And she said, well, I just need to hear it. A little bit more than what I have. And foolishly he replied, Honey, I told you the day we got married that I love you. Why do you need to hear it again? Now husbands, if that's you, take a note. Tell your wife you love her, okay? Um, Thankfully, God is not like that. God is not like that husband, right? He's not like this husband to his bride then, and he's not like that to his bride today, us, the church, the bride of Christ. See, just as clearly as God here in Malachi in the Old Testament affirms his love for his Old Testament chosen people, Israel, he most assuredly does that for you and I, the church, the bride of Christ. He affirms his love for us as we move into the New Testament. And just as God told his covenant people in Malachi, I have loved you. Friends, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian today, if you're a believer in Christ, God through Malachi is saying the same to you. Regardless of where you are, regardless of what's happening in your life, he's telling us, he's telling you, friend, I have loved you. We see this all over the New Testament, that that God's love for us in the New Testament, the church, his his New Testament people, it's a sovereign love. It's an unconditional love. Here's just a few scriptures. Of course, one that I think we could all recite together. John 3.16, right? For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8, it's maybe one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It says, but God demonstrates his own what? Love for us in this. While we were still, not friends, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How about this one in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10? This is love. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he, what? Loved us. That he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so as assuredly as God in Malachi tells the old covenant people of God, I have loved you. He says the same to you and I. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if times are good or times are bad. If it's pleasant or if it's painful. But regardless, God is saying to you, I have loved you. Well, we see God's claim at the very beginning of verse 2. But that claim to love is is quickly questioned by the people of God as they cross-examine that claim. So let's take a look at the the next half of verse 2. So God says in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. So how do the people respond? Well, let's read together. But you ask, says Malachi. So this is how the people of God, the covenant people of God respond. But you ask... 
How have you loved us? So how do the people respond? God says, I love you. And they're cynical. They, they're skeptical. They, they, they doubt. God, you say you love us, but, but how? How? What does it look like? Show us. Give us proof, right? What, what evidence can you, can you show us that, that you love us? See, they were doubting God's love for them, but why? Why were the people in Malachi's day doubting God's love for them? Well, friends, it's the same reason that you and I often doubt his love for us today. It's because they were experiencing a great deal of suffering. They looked at the circumstances that they had been through and that they were in, and they said, God, it just doesn't feel like you love me. If you loved me, would you let this happen? If you loved me, you wouldn't let that happen. See, they had been, remember, who? this is a post-exilic book. That means the people of God had been through the ringer. They had been exiled, taken away from their home, humiliated, abused, enslaved for 70 years, exiles, ripped away from their homes, ripped away from the very land that God had promised them, ripped away from the, the blessings of covenant obedience, and, and God, in his faithfulness, brought them back. He providentially brought them back to the land, and yet, all was not well. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, all was not well. They, they, didn't, they weren't sovereign. They, they didn't rule themselves. They were under Gentile oppression. And the economy of their day, it wasn't good. There was famine. Crops were failing. Kids were getting, going hungry. It was a difficult time to be in the covenant of God. See, these weren't the, the golden age. If you, if you read through Haggai, which they had heard, they had, they had heard Haggai speak and Zechariah. See, Haggai and Zechariah, they, they promised uh, this, this messianic age where there would be uh, uh, overflowing abundance and the land would be fruitful and God would rule. And they were anticipating that after they returned from the land. But they looked around and that's not what they experienced. And so they said, God, we hear that you love us, but... Is it true? How have you loved us? And what's, what's ironic about the situation that they were in, and I think it's often true of us, is that the situation they were in was the result of their own disobedience in the past. Right? They made their bed, and then they slept in it. Right? They were experiencing this situation because they had disobeyed God. See, it wasn't a legitimate cause for their disobedience in the presence, but they thought that it was. And so they questioned They question God, how have you loved me? Friends, I don't know about you, but if you're honest, I think you can uh, think of times, and maybe that's even today as you sit in this pew, where you have asked this very question of God. How have you loved me? How have you loved me? Here I am in my circumstance. God, how have you loved me? We all have been there. We all question God's love. We question his love for us after a a loved one in our family passes away. We question God's love. We question his love when we lose our job. It's no fault fault of our own, and uh, we lose our job. God, do you love us? We question his love when the child that we invest in goes wayward in spite of our best parenting efforts. God, do you love us? We question his love when our health begins to fail. God, do you love me? We question his love when the one we love breaks up with us and ends a relationship. God, do you love me? We question God's love even when our hardship and our suffering and the circumstances that we're in, it's our, it's our own fault. It's because of what we've done and poor decisions and yet we still have the gall to say, God, do you love me? 
So how does God respond? How does God respond to a covenant people then and today when we look at our circumstances, what we're going through, and we say, God, how have you loved us? Well, we're going to close by seeing God's answer. God says, I love you. He's given them a claim. I love you. They've cross-examined that claim. How have you loved us? We need some evidence. We need some proof. And so God then, in the confirmation of his claim, gives them two bits of evidence, two pieces of evidence of his love for them. And we see that in the rest of this section, the tail end of verse 2 through verse 5. We see God's confirmation of his claim that he indeed has loved them and he does love them. If the Jewish people in Malachi's day, if they wanted evidence of God's abiding love upon them, all they had to do, Malachi says, all they had to do was contrast their situation with the situation of the nation of Edom. Yes, Edom, E-D-O-M. Now you may be thinking, who is Edom? What, what nation is this? The Edomites. Who are the Edomites? Well, the Edomites were the ethnicity, the nation, the people group who came from a man, if you remember in your Old Testament all the way back in Genesis, they came from a man whose name was Esau. Now Esau hopefully rings a bell because Esau was the older brother of a man named what? Jacob, right? You got Esau and you got Jacob. They were twins, right? Remember, you got Abraham, Isaac, and you got Esau, born first, and then you have Jacob. The Edomites were the descendants from Esau. So, what is God going to do? He's going to give them two bits of evidence, right? The first bit of evidence is his election of Israel as a people. His election of them, his choosing of them to enter into a covenant with him. First, he reminds them that God... That, that he chose Jacob, their forefather, not Esau, the Edomites' forefather, to be the covenant people through whom, eventually we know, Messiah would come. And who is Messiah? Well, of course we know who that is. That's Jesus Christ, the one who came, who lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary death, who rose again from the dead to offer us salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sins, that, that their descendants the descendants of Jacob, he, they would be the one through whom Jesus would come. So he gives them the first bit of evidence, the election of Israel. Second, he contrasts Edom's future judgment as a nation with Israel's future blessing, with Israel's future restoration. You could call it the existence of Israel. So two bits of of evidence, right? How have you loved us, God? God says, let me tell you how I have loved you. I've chosen you to be my covenant people, the election of Israel. I continue to preserve you and I purify you as my people, the existence of Israel. Let's take a look at the first. The first bit of evidence that God loved his covenant people is their election of them. We see that at the tail end of verse 2, running through the, the, the beginning of verse 3. It reads this way. The Lord asks a question of his covenant people. Was not Esau... Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
Let's take these a phrase at a time. God begins with a question to his covenant people. Was not Esau, Jacob's brother? Why does he ask this question? Of course, God's people knew that Esau was Jacob's brother. He's not pointing out anything they didn't know. They knew their ancient descendants, the Edomites. They had a rough history with them, as we'll see in just a bit. So why does God ask this question? Why does he say, covenant people? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Here's what he's doing. He's pointing out a simple fact that they would have been intimately familiar with. And that fact is that Esau was born first. Esau was born first. He's the firstborn. Now in our culture, no big deal. That just means maybe you get pampered a little bit more, right? You're the firstborn, right? Firstborns, you know, it's true. At least I think so. Um, it's, he was the firstborn. But why did, why did that matter? Well, because in that culture, the father usually favored the firstborn. And in that culture, they got a larger portion of the blessing. So there was this precedent, right, in the culture, way back in Genesis, that Esau should have been favored over Jacob. But friends, what did God do? How did God operate when he looked at the twins and he said, one of them would be the line that I would pass my covenant blessings from which Messiah would come. All the promises would go through one. Did he look at the older and say, it's got to be the older? No, he didn't. God is reminding his people, I didn't choose Esau for the covenant. I chose your descendant, right? I, I chose Jacob. This was abnormal, right? And then he expresses that in another phrase. He says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, on the outset, we read that and we say, this this doesn't sound fair. God's playing favorites. He he loves one and hates the other. Friends, uh, we must be careful not to read the Bible in terms in the Bible like love and hate through our cultural lenses. We have to ask the question, um, what did this mean to the people um, some uh, 2,000, about 3,500 years ago. Um, And what we find out is that these are technical terms. They are covenant terms. Covenant terms. See, if you read through ancient Near Eastern glasses, you find out both in the Bible and even outside of the Bible, when people spoke about a covenant agreement, they used these terms. And so when they entered into a covenant agreement with someone, they would say, I have loved you. I have loved you. And when they chose not to enter into a covenant agreement with someone, they would say, I hated you. So here's what's going on. God is simply affirming, I have chosen to enter into a covenant, a special covenant relationship from which Israel, God's people, eventually would spring from Jacob, not Esau. And so in this context, to hate doesn't mean, as we think, it doesn't mean God was malicious towards Esau and his descendants. No, God loved Esau. He loves Esau's descendants. He simply means that he didn't choose for the covenant to go through him, but to go through Jacob. So the point here is that God chose to bestow favor upon one and the other. So we're thinking, we're thinking in terms of election, aren't we? Um, this is an election year, 2016. I hope you voted, and I hope you vote again, right? It's, it's up and coming. Um, and I'm not going to make a political statement, but I've, I've kept a kind of a bird's eye view on the political process and, of course, the candidates. Um, And I have noticed uh, in the Republican Party, there is one particular candidate um, who is is in the habit, I'm not going to say the person's name, but you can probably guess, who's in the habit of saying things like, in particular, uh, like after winning a state election, let's say he won Illinois. uh, He's in the habit of saying, the people of Illinois love me. The people of New York love me. 
the Hispanic people love me. Like he just, he says that a lot. People, people love me. And, and in the context of election, um, he's right in some sense. If the people of a state voted for him, if they elected him, then it's an indication, at least to some degree, that they have loved him, right? He rightly equates election with love. That's what God is doing here to his elect people. He is reminding them, I have chosen you. I have chosen you to enter into a covenant relationship with me. I have loved you. That's the evidence, O Israel. You doubt my love because of your circumstances? You are my covenant people, is what he is reminding them. Remember, out of all the nations of the earth, I chose you to enter into a special covenant relationship. He says, friends, there should be no doubt that I love you. Well, it's not just true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament as well. As we move into the New Testament, we see this parallel truth. The truth is on the screen behind me. God's election of us, the church, God's election of us is also a demonstration of his love for us. See, just as God chose Israel to be the covenant people, it was a demonstration of his love for them. The New Testament also affirms that our election to be the saved people of God, the church who placed their faith in Jesus, that too is a demonstration of his love for us. I think one verse where this is abundantly clear is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It reads this way. For he, speaking of God the Father, chose us in him, speaking of Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, notice this. In what? Love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So brothers and sisters, if you are a believer today, then know that God has chosen to enter into a covenant relationship with you, into the new covenant. We're talking about that in Sunday school. The new covenant. And that's the first way that we can know. That's the first way that you can know that regardless of whether things are good or bad, whether it's pleasurable or painful, whatever is happening in your life, the first way that you can know and have assurance, the first bit of evidence that you can uh, sink your teeth into and know that God has loved you is that he has chosen you to be his own, to be his son, to be his daughter. What else do you need? What other bit of evidence, Christian, can we cling to other than that we are his and that he is ours? And so the first bit of evidence that he gives the covenant people then and the covenant people today is his election of us we delight that we know as Christians that we are a part of his family. He loves us. But not only that, not only the election of Israel, but the existence of Israel. We pick up the text in verse 3. God says this, And and I have turned his hill country, speaking of, of Esau, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it, speaking to Israel, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Here what God is doing is he's reminding Israel, his old covenant people, what he has done in the past as a just judge over the wicked Edomite nation. 
And then what he will do, he reminds them of a past judgment and of a future judgment to come. This is not God just being mean. We read these passages and we think that's pretty harsh, right? This is harsh language as he speaks to uh, the the nation of, of Edom and the Edomites. He's not just being mean. This is a demonstration of God's just and long-deserved judgment on a people that for centuries, centuries, hundreds of years, not decades, hundreds of years, were incredibly wicked, incredibly brutal, incredibly evil, and in particular, they were hostile to God's covenant people, Israel. They were hostile, they were mean, they were wicked with the crown jewel of their hostility against Israel, coming in the year 586. What happened in 586? In 586, Babylon, uh, entered into Jerusalem, destroyed uh, Jerusalem, and took out God's covenant people, exiling them uh, all the way to Babylon. So what does that have to do with the Edomites? Well, we're told in various places uh, uh, that the Edomites encouraged this, that they looked on a sister nation. Remember, these are relatives, right? It'd be like us and the British, kind of sister nations, right? Uh, cut from the same cloth. They looked at what Babylon was doing to their brothers, and they said, Go get him. Go get him. Be mean. And not only did they do that, but they encouraged them to torture the children of the Jewish people. And as the Jews were fleeing from Jerusalem, we're told um, that that the Edomites would stand, uh, kind of waiting, lying in wait for these Jewish people uh, leaving Jerusalem, and they would murder them. Friends, that's just... That's just the epitome of it. If you read through the Old Testament, there's all sorts of conflict between Edom and Israel. So... This is not God being just mean. This is a long, just, long-deserved judgment on a wicked people. So here's the question. How does this picture and prophecy of Edom's judgment, how does that affirm God's love for Israel? Because remember, this is actually about Israel, right? God is trying to tell his covenant people, I love you, I love you. And then it's weird because it switches to Edom. Well, well, here's what's going on. In these verses, Israel is supposed to be reminded. Israel is supposed to be reminded that in stark contrast to Edom, Israel's inheritance, right, their land, it's not a, a land of jackals. It's not, it's not eventually going to be a wasteland. It's a land flowing of milk and honey, a land that would be abundantly prosperous under Messiah's rule. So they're to be reminded, oh, that's the future of these people who have been so hostile to us, but our future is different. We will continue to exist, but not only that, in contrast to the eventual extinction of Edom, which happened uh, kind of throughout history, but they are no more. You don't see any Edomites today. They are gone. In contrast to the extinction of Edom as a nation, God promised Israel that they would always be his special people. So by looking at the fate of Edom, God's people were to be reminded, we will continue to exist. God, can, God loves us. We have a future. We have, we have a land. See, God's refusal to stop working in the life of his people. God's refusal to say, I'm letting you go. His persevering work of making them holy, even if it's through difficulty. And yes, God makes us holy through difficulty. That was his second love, his second evidence of his love. And so as we move from the Old Testament to the New, we see another parallel truth, and it's this. God's preservation of us, God's preservation of us, is a demonstration also of his love for us, right? Just as God's preservation of Israel was a demonstration of his love for them, his preservation of me as his son and 
you as his daughter if you have faith in Christ. It's, a, it's an ongoing demonstration of his love for us. So friend, if you want evidence that God still loves you in spite of what you're going through, in spite of the times, how about the fact that he hasn't given up on you? In spite of your cynical attitude, in spite of your questions, in spite of your doubts, in spite of maybe even a period of rebellion, he still calls you a son. He still calls you a daughter. He's committed to you, Christian, for the long haul of eternity. I think the clearest place as we turn to the New Testament and the New Covenant that shows us that God's work of discipline and refinement, even through the adversity that we're facing, is an indication. It's actually showing us that he loves us is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. Let's read it together on the screen behind me. And have you, the author of Hebrews writes, have you completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a, that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Here's the reason why. Because the Lord disciplines the one he what? Loves. The one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. And then he admonishes them. Endure hardship. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what? Children are not disciplined by their father, he asks. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. Not true sons and daughters at all. So friends, God proves his love for Israel and his love for us, both in our election and in our continued existence. As we close, I want to share a a story. Shelly and I, oh, it's probably been a month or so ago now. We were uh, sitting in bed, kind of waiting, uh, waiting, getting getting ready to, to feed Dever his last meal, and uh, we were both, I think, fairly exhausted and kind of sitting on the bed trying to stay awake to feed our baby so that we can go to bed. And uh, at that point, uh, Dever had not been particularly sleeping well, and uh, neither had Sawyer, and that's pretty kind of normal, I think, in our household. You've heard me speak of it before, and we just kind of ha- began a kind of a candid conversation. You know, sometimes you just kind of have small talk, but sometimes you really kind of open up with your spouse. And uh, we were just kind of sharing that, you know, um, I- I'm angry. I'm angry. How about, how about you? Yeah, I'm frustrated. I- I'm angry at God. He's not answered our prayers. Yeah, I'm kind of angry about that too because we've been praying for seven years just to get a good night's rest and it just hasn't really happened. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, we <laughs> that's true. And uh, we... You know, we were just kind of jaded. We were just like, okay, I know God loves me, but I just, I mean, it's one night, it's one night, I mean, can God, can we get one night, you know? And we, we were just honest with one another. And Shelly, I think it was right after our Good Friday service, and uh, she said, you know, um, God was telling me, and I was reminded at our Good Friday service of, God loves me. And I'm like, yeah. She's like, no, like, God loves us. I mean, I, I looked, and I was reminded of what Jesus went through. I mean, look at what he endured from the hands of sinners. And not only that, but he bore the wrath of all humanity on the cross. And she said, I just was reminded simply that, that I mean, yeah, I'm not sleeping, but God loves us. He loves me. And we were encouraged by that. You know, my wife was right. She's right. The question of whether or not God loves us, it's, uh, it's answered. It's settled. It's settled definitively at the cross. 
See, we're prone to ask, how have you loved us? When we're prone to ask that, all we have to do to get our answer is to look at the cross. See, God settled it there. God settled it for good. He loves us that much is what the cross means. So today, if you find yourself in a place that these uh, 5th century BC Jewish people found themselves questioning, wondering, asking, God, how have you loved me? Then be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. God loves you. Look at the cross. He has proven it in the person and the work of Jesus. But that work must be personally received. It must be trusted in. It must be applied to your spiritual account. Yes, as we've sung and as we've heard and as we've spoken, Jesus loves us. He loves us. But he loves us too much to force his salvation, to force his kingship upon us. See, God loves us, but we must respond to that love. We must choose it. We must accept it personally. The Bible calls it faith. The Bible calls it trust. The Bible calls it belief. The Bible calls it acceptance. It's not just enough to go away feeling good feelings that God loves us. No, we must accept the epitome of his love on the cross for us in his son by receiving him as our savior and beginning to follow him as our Lord. And so if you've never done that today, as we close, I invite you to do that right now as we pray. Trust in Jesus as your Savior. He died for you. He loves you. Begin to follow him as your Savior. And friends, if you've done that today and you're here and you know that that is the case, then be reminded of this when doubts and dangers and hardships and life creep in and we doubt like the people of God so many years ago, then know, know he loves you. Because friends, God didn't just say to his people so long ago, I have loved you. He says to you, He says to me, who have entered into the new covenant through faith in Christ, I have loved you, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would take root in our hearts, our cynical, our doubtful, our questioning, our bruised and battered hearts through the hardship of living in a fallen world. And we all experience it in various ways, in various levels. And uh, we all know the, the pain that this life can bring. And yet for those of us who have been chosen by you to enter into a covenant through your son, Jesus, and those of us who continue by your grace to be uh, preserved in that relationship for eternity, we are so grateful for these bits of evidence that we can turn with finality and look to the cross and know that you love us. You love us enough to die for us. We are so very grateful. Father, for those here who may not have a relationship with you through faith in Christ, that today they would know the love of God for the first time in a personal way as they trust and call upon Jesus to save them. And it's in his great name we pray. And God's people said, amen. Amen. See you next week, guys. Thanks.